There's no fitting way to introduce this episode. This is a story of a young black boy who is tortured and killed by white men in Mississippi. It's the murder that galvanized the civil rights movement and highlighted to the world how much hate dominated and controlled the southern United States. This is the story of Emmett Till's death. Welcome into Killing Miss and Hidden, your favorite podcast about bad things. I'm your host, Brad, former criminal defense trial attorney. I don't have anything pithy or cute to say to start off this episode because this one is very heavy and very serious. This is one of the crimes that changed the course of history, and yet so many people are ignorant of the details of it. Efforts are still being made to cover up or whitewash this incident. It's obviously an extremely important case in United States history. We could easily spend the entire month just talking about this case, but that's not how we typically approach matters. We like to hit different cases each week, and frankly, I think there's a minority of folks that just would refuse to listen. I'm intentionally doing this case here in February, which is Black History Month in the United States. I'm always quick to criticize companies for latching on to, you know, Black History Month or Hispanic History Month so they can put a cute little ribbon on their products instead of doing anything practical to help improve our world or help improve the plight of Hispanics or or African Americans. But I may be a little hypocritical thus by by doing this, by latching on to Black History Month myself to tell this tale. But I'm hoping that by sharing the story with you, I am actually giving something back and educating people on this incredibly important and just devastatingly tragic case. Everybody needs to know Emmett Till's story. Everyone. So that's what we're doing today. I suspect many people are familiar with the name, but don't really know the details of the story. Emmett Lewis Till was a black teenager from Chicago who visited family in Money, Mississippi during the summer of 1955. While there, he was abducted from his great uncle's house by a mob of armed white men late one August night where he was beaten, mutilated, tortured, and eventually killed. What caused this form of mob justice? What immoral act did this child engage in? Well, he may have flirted with a married white woman. That's the TLDR of this case. We're going to get into the details. Please know that I'm not going to pull any punches on this one. It's too important a case. I won't be overly graphic, of course, but I will pass along the facts. And if I have a bit of a tone in my voice, I'm sorry, but this case makes me angry. We shouldn't treat humans like this, but it's history. So how does and why does a black teenager from Chicago end up in Mississippi in the midst of Jim Crow dominating the region? And in case you aren't familiar with that term, Jim Crow was a series of laws 
set throughout the segregation era South, designed to keep blacks and whites separate. Uh, surely you've heard of the phrase separate but equal, one of the greatest legal forces ever created. These were the racist policies that were given the force of law under Jim Crow acts. Laws that could determine where you could sit, what hotels you could stay in, and even who you could talk to based on the color of your skin. In hindsight, of course, it seems incredibly dangerous to allow a black teenager to willingly enter this type of environment. In fact, a week before Emmett made his trip down to Mississippi, a fellow by the name of Lamar Smith, who is a civil rights activist, was shot and killed in Brookhaven, Mississippi, merely for protesting segregation. This occurred right in front of the county courthouse in broad daylight. And though three arrests were made, nobody ever faced punishment for his murder. But Emmett was kind of enchanted by stories relatives would tell about the beauty of the South. Of course, his mom was very, very hesitant about allowing her child to go into hostile territory. But Emmett would be staying with family. They promised to keep him safe. Further, she spent many an hour lecturing Emmett about how he's going into a different world that he doesn't understand and basically taught him how to act in front of white people with the prime directive of just avoid as many white folks as you can. On top of this, people knew Emmett as a smart and charming kid and that it was kind of the general consensus among the family that if any teenager could blend into this environment, it would be Emmett. Now, some history buffs may have noticed that we're talking about a time just a little more than a year after the Brown versus Board of Education decision from the U.S. Supreme Court. And this was an important decision. It's one of the first dominoes to fall in destroying the Jim Crow laws. Separate but equal had been declared unconstitutional, but the South was invoking a plan known as massive resistance intended to frustrate all efforts to force the end of segregation. And this just wasn't a bunch of hillbillies sitting out in their shed or on the front porch. This was organized by political leaders all the way up to United States senators. So far did this massive resistance program go that more than one Virginia school system had to close all their public schools just to make sure that black students wouldn't be forced to sit next to white students in a classroom. Local governments did everything possible to frustrate blacks from exercising even their basic rights, such as voting. Whites in the South were fighting like hell not to allow their, quote, way of life from being destroyed by a bunch of judges in Washington. And of course, you know, I, I am generalizing. There were certainly white folks who were allies in the civil rights movement, but they were the minority in the South. There's no doubt about that. And so this is the environment into which Emmett stepped. He arrived in Mississippi on August 21st, 1955, and he quickly made friends with the other black children in the area. Now, one of the things that shocked Emmett initially was the amount of poverty. He literally went from one of the largest cities in the United States to a world of dirt farms, tin roofs, and few resources. 
he saw how the children had to work on the farms to help their families survive. Mostly sharecropping families, too. And he was expected to do the same. Now, Emmett arriving was a bit of an exciting event for the other children. And so on the night of August 24th, they decided it was a good time to celebrate. After finishing their day in the fields, Emmett and his new group of friends went to Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market to buy a little bit of candy. The store was owned by a young white couple, Roy and Carolyn Bryant. Now, Roy was out when the band of children arrived, but Caroline was assisted by her sister-in-law, Juanita Millam. The two women kept a close eye on the children, expecting them to be trouble because they were black. However, the group bought their candy and left without incident. Now, what happened next is disputed. There are at least three different main stories and probably more than that. Journalist William Bradford Huey reported that Emmett was bragging about having a white girlfriend back home and even produced a picture of a white girl from his wallet to support the claim. Now, this caused some of the other children to dare Emmett to go back into the little store and flirt with Carolyn. This account by the journalist is strongly disputed by those who were there during the event. Emmett's friends claimed that he let out a loud whistle at Carolyn after they exited the store. And it's believed that Emmett was likely trying to get a rise out of his new friends, but he just didn't understand what a dangerous, dangerous mistake he just made. His friends kind of paused wide-eyed and stared at him and then just ran away, terrified. This was a land ruled by the Ku Klux Klan and black men were risking their lives just by looking at a white woman too long. There is a slight asterisk to the story. Assuming this is the truth, Emmett did suffer from a stuttering problem, and one of the tricks he had been taught to overcome some of his speech difficulties was to whistle, particularly when trying to make a B sound. Like if he wanted to ask for, say, bubblegum. At least one witness who is not part of Emmett's group believed Emmett was whistling at a checkers game that was going on outside the store, not at anyone in particular. Now, the third story is the one that would be told by Carolyn in court. She claims that Emmett walked up to her, grabbed her hand, and asked her for a date out while, she, while they were in the store. When she refused, Emmett allegedly continued to follow her around the store, making comments like, are you afraid you can't handle me? And, you know, I've been with white women before. It was only when one of his friends came into the store and kind of drug Emmett out that the alleged harassment end. I believe it is undisputed that Emmett was the last child to buy candy and the last child to leave the store. So he was alone with Carolyn and Juanita for a period of time. But Emmett's friends insist this, we're talking like 30, 45 seconds at most. Much, much less time than Carolyn's story would require to be accepted as true. 
And regardless of which of those three stories is true, it is undisputed that after whatever event occurred, Carolyn went out of the store following the children, went to her car, and withdrew a pistol. And when Emmett and his friends saw her do this, this is when they all dashed away back towards the safety of home. It's also undisputed that Emmett begged his friends not to tell his great uncle what he had done. Now, who knows how the story had turned out if his great uncle, Mose, had been put on notice of what had occurred so he had time to react. Carolyn's husband, Roy, like I said, was not there when all this went down. He was actually out of town part of an extended shrimp hauling gig in Texas to earn a little bit of extra money. And he came home on August 27th, which would be three days later. But Carolyn did not tell Roy about the encounter with Emmett because she feared that Roy would hunt down the child and hurt him. Roy actually learned of the event from a passerby and customer who had witnessed some version of the event. There is some evidence Roy was under the impression that Emmett had used ugly language around his store with his wife and then outside of his store. Regardless of whatever happened, Roy was completely set off. He apparently grabbed the first black child he saw, you know, picked him up, began shaking him and roughly questioning him. The child knew nothing of the event. Roy didn't know that, though, because all black folks know each other, right? So Roy called one of his best friends to help with the investigation. Roy was also pretty furious with his wife for not immediately telling him what happened. Now, with his friend in tow, several minutes later, they went driving down the road. And Roy was the passenger, or I'm sorry, the driver, and directed his friend, who was the passenger, to grab the next black child they saw. The pair effectively kidnapped this child. And this teenager was only generally aware of what had occurred. Eventually, through harassment tactics like this, Roy learned that he was looking for a boy from Chicago who was staying with Moe's Wright. Roy called up his half-brother, and the pair was overheard discussing the abduction of Emmett that night. The early morning hours of August 28th, sometime between 2 and 3 a.m., Roy and his half-brother drove to Moses' property. Now, we get differing reports here. Some claim these two men were alone. Others claim they had as many as seven companions with them. Regardless, Roy banged on the front door, and when Mose answered, he said to take them to, quote, the nigger who did the talking. Mo's wife came up, offered the men money, mainly as a stall tactic to try to get Emmett enough time to get changed into some clothes so he could sneak out the back. Mo's also tried to explain to Roy that Emmett wasn't from around here. He didn't understand what he had done. But eventually Roy said, Mose, if you want to live to see your 65th birthday, You'll get Emmett outside immediately. Emmett appeared at the front door and was immediately grabbed by Roy. He was very groggy from sleep at this time. 
He was put in the truck, and Roy, there's some stories where Roy apparently took him to the cab and asked somebody inside if Emmett was the boy, and a feminine voice said yes, and then Emmett was tossed, either inside the cab or in the back of the truck. Now, if this version is true, most assume that feminine voice is Carolyn, but she countered by claiming she was asked to identify Emmett at the back of the store and allegedly refused to do so, instead stating that Emmett admitted he was the one Roy was looking for. Now, from witnesses who were not involved in this, who just happened to be awake at these early morning hours, they reported seeing two white men driving the truck with two large black men in the back. And it's believed that Roy had, uh, let's say, recruited the two black men to his, assist him, probably under significant threat. The truck went to a barn in the dead of night, and all the torture occurred there. One passerby said he heard what sounded like a fight and crying coming from the barn. One of the black men, who was known as Too Tight, was later seen cleaning blood off of his hands. When he was questioned by the passerby, he just said he had killed a deer that night. Emmett's body was found three days later. He had been severely beaten and shot before being tossed off the Black Bayou Bridge near the, near the Tallahatchie River. He was grotesquely swollen and bloated. His face was completely unrecognizable. He had been shot in the head above the right ear. His head had been beaten so badly, one of his eye sockets had been shattered, and his eye was dangling loosely. His back and his hips were also in a terrible state showing signs that he had taken multiple and severe blows to those areas. Now, at the time, of course, local officials didn't do anything but try to cover this up, but a 2005 autopsy found that Emmett had suffered fractures, some of them very significant to his skull, his wrists, and to a femur. Now, as a footnote, many people refer to Emmett's death as a lynching, Others argue there's no evidence in support of this being the cause of death. When he was found, he was found naked and had a 74-pound fan from a local cotton gin tied around his neck with barbed wire. But it looks like the purpose of this was to keep his body submerged when he landed in the water. It seems like from the investigations that have taken place, you know, much more recently, that Emmett was probably forced to strip down at the bridge and then was tied to the fan, despite being in such horrible shape, just as one last final insult before they finally killed the poor boy. Mississippi Papers, at most, devoted a couple paragraphs to the incident. But that was enough attention to catch the eye of some of the national and international press. The NAACP became heavily involved, 
as did the White Citizens Council, which is essentially the antithesis of the NAACP. Emmett's death set off fiery debates about segregation, the effectiveness of law enforcement, and the split between the North and the South. These debates really dominated the news cycle, and this was at a time when the Cold War typically was the first story being reported on. I mean, we're literally only weeks away from the beginning of the Vietnam War when Emmett's murder occurs. Emmett's body was shipped back to Chicago, largely in the condition he was found in, except he had been clothed by Mississippi authorities. And in fact, the entire, it, it was a cluster just to get Emmett's body back to Chicago. Mississippi authorities tried to quickly bury Emmett in an unmarked grave so no one could see what was going on, but legislators from Chicago, from Illinois, federal officials all intervened and basically secured Emmett's body to be returned home with the condition Mississippi gave that the casket was not to be opened. Nobody was ever to look at the body. Well, Emmett's mama was not a pushover. And when the casket arrived, she went to identify her son. And she saw how horribly he had been beaten and tortured and maimed. And she insisted on having an open casket funeral for Emmett. She wanted the world to see what had happened to her son in Mississippi. Tens of thousands of people poured out on the day of Emmett's service, packing the church, the sidewalks, the streets, all in a show of support. The magazine Jet published a brutal but accurate picture of Emmett's body, sharing the evidence of the carnage he suffered with the world that Mississippi tried so hard to cover up. Now, of course, as you would expect, most of the nation in the world was fuming. They were demanding justice. But Mississippi officials fought back. They began printing false stories of riots and brawls breaking out at Emmett's funeral throughout Southern newspapers. Roy and his brother were interviewed multiple times with the reports, always focusing on their military service and the important roles they played in the community. Carolyn became a bit of a star with her beauty and virtues being praised on a daily basis by the Mississippi press. The LaFleur County Sheriff began warning citizens to expect a rush of angry Northerners, both black and whites, who would soon come storming into Mississippi and every citizen needed to arm themselves. Tallahatchie Sheriff Clarence Strider who had overseen the recovery of Emmett's body, confirmed initially to the press that it was Emmett and indicated that he had strong evidence supporting murder charges against both Roy and his brother. But he quickly did a 180. Suddenly he became of the opinion that Emmett was still alive and was in hiding and that the corpse he recovered was actually a plant from the NAACP. Nevertheless, due to immense pressure being placed on the state, the governor made sure that Roy and his brother were indicted for the murder of Emmett Till. 
The trial, of course, attracted massive attention. It lasted for five days, and some describe it as the first mega media event of the civil rights movement. Now, with all this going on, no hotels in the county would rent rooms to black visitors. So a Mr. T.R.M. Howard, who is the second wealthiest black man in Mississippi and lived nearby, opened up his property to such visitors. On top of this, he hired a small army of armed guards just so there would be no problems at their home. As for Roy and his brother, they weren't wealthy men, and they didn't know how they were going to pay for their legal fees. But the white community rallied around them and raised over $10,000 to pay their attorneys. That's about $110,000 in today's money. When the trial began, naturally, seating in the courtroom was segregated. Even black members of the press were forced to sit in different spots from the white members of the press. Notably, the black press box was as far away from the jury as could be seated in the courtroom. Many remember during a return from a lunch break, Sheriff Strider taking center stage in the courtroom before the judge returned, waving his hat up at the black section of the courtroom on the second story and proclaiming, Hello, niggers! Many of the white attendees openly wore handguns, which was a clear attempt at intimidation. And as you would probably expect, the jury was, of course, all white. The defense echoed Sheriff Strider's recent contentions that Emmett's body had never been properly identified. No one saw Emmett get hurt by Roy or his brother. And that the last time the defendants had seen Emmett is when they let Emmett go in front of Roy's store after a stern talking to. Of course, the prosecution did have witnesses placing Emmett with Roy, but most wouldn't talk or suddenly couldn't remember. But not most. Emmett's great uncle bravely appeared in the courtroom and testified against Roy, going so far as to point at the white man who had taken Emmett from him at gunpoint. Now, in today's world, that's kind of a seemingly minor act. We would expect that to happen in a murder trial. But back during the 50s, this was a massive, massive display of boldness as no black man had ever testified so directly against a white man in a criminal case and lived to tell the tale. He was literally risking his life just by showing up in court and testifying. Naturally, Despite the defense or the prosecution's best efforts, the all-white jury deliberated for only 67 minutes, finding both Roy and his brother not guilty. One juror allegedly told a member of the press that it took that long because they decided to enjoy some of the free soda and other goodies given to them in the jury room. Historians who have really dug into this trial have noted that the jury pool was not only made up of almost not only made up of white folks entirely, but the jury pool from which these men were selected came from a country known as Hill Country inside of the county. And this was the main area of the county 
where race relations were most strained because white farmers and black farmers were fighting over a very limited amount of land that was suitable for growing crops. And white farmers were constantly screaming for authorities to come remove the black farmers so they could have their land. So somehow, some way, this random jury pool was created solely from the part of this county where white folks were the most upset at black folks. In later years, most of the jurors would admit that they believe Roy and his brother were guilty, but they were concerned because the only available punishments, which at that time would have been life in prison or death, were far too harsh a penalty for the killing of a black man. I didn't stutter. I didn't make that up. They believe that life in prison was far too harsh a penalty, not for the killing of a man, but for the killing of a black man. In 1956, just a year later, both Roy and his brother agreed to be interviewed by Look Magazine in exchange for $4,000. During the interview, which took place at their attorney's office, and the interview was actually conducted by their own attorneys instead of the journalists. Roy and his brother admitted to killing Emmett, knowing that they couldn't be retried, as such would be a violation of double jeopardy. And neither men admitted to feeling any guilt over this. And I actually want to read this quote to you from the interview. This is from Roy's brother. This is what he says to a national publication while his attorneys are sitting there guiding the questions as best they can. Quote, well, what else could we do? He was hopeless. I'm no bully. I never heard a nigger in my life. I like niggers in their place. I know how to work them but I just decided it was time to put a few folks on notice. As long as I live and can do anything about it, niggers are going to stay in their place. Niggers ain't going to vote where I live. If they did, they'd control this government. They ain't going to go to school with my kids. And when a nigger gets close to mentioning sex with a white woman, he's tired of living. I'm likely to kill him. Me and my folks fought for this country, and we got some rights. I stood there in that shed, and I listened to that nigger throw that poison at me, and I just made up my mind. Chicago boy, I said, I'm tired of you sending, I'm tired of them sending your kind down here to stir up trouble. God damn you, I'm going to make an example of you, just so everybody can know how me and my folks stand. End quote. This was the attitude justice was facing. This is how white men thought in the South during this time. Again, please remember, not all, but many. How could a fair trial be had when every potential member of the jury still thought of black men and women as no better than farm animals? Now, for what it's worth, this interview had massive consequences for Roy and his brother. They were literally run out of Mississippi and forced to relocate to Texas. Even being two states away, when Texans learned who the brothers were, they were immediately shunned. 
Now, one positive impact of this, and I hate saying that again, but it did serve as the catalyst for fueling the civil rights movement. The nation saw how two white men in the South could torture a black child to death and not even receive a slap on the wrist. Funding for the NAACP increased dramatically as people, particularly white families in the North, saw exactly how horrific lives were for blacks living in the South. It wasn't long after this that the Montgomery bus boycotts began. In fact, it was in December that same year. And this was, you know, part of the nonviolence resistance ethos that the civil rights movement embraced. Efforts to register massive amounts of black adults to vote were being undertaken throughout the South. And it seems like all the effort that Roy and his brother had made to protect their way of life from people of a different color quickly came crashing down around them. Lester Bayless, he was actor John Wayne's personal costumer. He was from Mississippi, and he tried his best to get his movie to get a movie made about the final hours of Emmett's life. He even managed to get Roy to cooperate. The pair drove around the area where the murder took place while Roy recounted what, how the night went down, and Luster recorded the entire conversation. Few people ever have ever heard it, and it's in the FBI's custody right now, but apparently, from those who did get a chance to listen to it, Roy told the story of how he helped torture a child to death with a laugh in his voice. No remorse for the awful things he did to another human being, because frankly, Emmett was not another human being to Roy. Okay, that's, that's the story. Um, I really, really think this case is important to all Americans, heck, all of humanity. I know I keep saying this same thing over and over, but I mean, this case shows us what hate truly looks like. This was hate at the height of its influence. Strutting in the sunlight, destroying as many lives as possible. This is a hate born from all the evil and fear of mankind. And frankly, it saddens me that these stories arise from my home region. I want to repeat part of what Roy's brother said during that famous interview that I quoted. Quote, I like niggers in their place. I know how to work them. End quote. I think that says everything about the attitude of the white community in the 1950s. Black folks weren't viewed as human. You could threaten them, slap them. Hell, you could even murder them and walk away without any consequences. If Roy and his brother had enough sense, they could have just lived their lives as secret heroes after all was said and done. But when your world views that askew, you probably don't have much common sense. Martin Luther King Jr. said, quote, discrimination is a hellhound that gnaws at Negroes in every waking moment of their lives to remind them 
that the lie of their inferiority is accepted as truth in the society dominating. Now, I, I admit, as, as a white dude, I can't fully appreciate this quote, but I do feel like this case gives a glimpse into what an awful life people with the quote-unquote wrong skin color had to endure during the 1950s. And it's, it's always funny to me how the 1950s on television and whatnot are always viewed as the idyllic time to live. You know, some wonderful slice of Americana we should try to recapture. But this isn't the society I want to live in. None of us should want this. Please know this was obviously a very tough episode to research and record. I, I did my best to be fair and honest. If at any time I using terminology that was incorrect, I'm sorry. If any of this case offends you, frankly, good. The whole thing is offensive and repugnant, and we should be offended by it. I'm glad we celebrate the successes of African Americans, but we do a really crappy job at highlighting the struggles they had to face. I mean, imagine trying to win a game of Monopoly when you only get half the amount of money other players get for pass and go, and you can't build any houses on your properties. Oh, and there's no get-out-of-jail-free cards for you, and the chance cards lead you to getting beaten, attacked by police dogs, or sprayed with fire hoses. If you find a way to win at that game, somehow, you damn sure deserve to be celebrated. I want to note, too, that during my research, I learned that there are, there were, and continue to be, covert efforts made to erase Emmett Till from Mississippi's history. Researchers report that the official court file is empty, not a single sheet of paper inside of it. Apparently, the contents of Roy's murder trial were lost during renovations to the courthouse during the 70s. All of the evidence, too. A local lawyer reported seeing the 74-pound fan Emmett was tied to just being left outside the courthouse dumpsters during that renovation to be destroyed. No one has a copy of the trial transcript. Not a single person. The original disappeared. And at best, some folks have located partial copies of a copy of a copy of the original. Libraries at the University of Mississippi and De Delta State University suspiciously are lacking newspaper archives from this time. Or when they do have periodicals from this period of time, the stories about Emmett just happen to be missing, just boldly ripped out. It's my belief these efforts to whitewash away this horrible event occurred much closer to the 1950s than towards today, but I'm sad to report that several historical markers which have been erected throughout the area routinely go missing or get destroyed by acts of vandals. And these acts continue to this day. In fact, I won't name names, but you can go on there and find pictures of fraternities who gather around some of these signs with shotguns. And soon thereafter, 
Their signs have to be replaced because they're unreadable, full of, full of bullet holes. Like I said, I suppose this is my contribution to Black History Month, whatever it's worth. I hope it helps some people gain a tiny bit more appreciation for what the struggle was like. People today love to say, you know, oh, the struggle was real. No, no, you sweet summer child. This was the struggle. This was the reality of it. A child could be beaten and dumped under a bridge for talking to a woman with a different skin color, and no governmental authority would give a damn. Thank you all for tuning in. I don't have a palate cleanser. It doesn't seem appropriate. Please remember we're all humans. We're all trying to get through this daily grind. I don't know what you struggle with. You don't know what I struggle with. We don't know what that guy over there struggles with. So let's just try to be good people, both to ourselves and to others. We need as much love in this world as possible. So please go do that. Just spread one smile out in the world today. You know, the world needs people like you. As always, thank you for everything you do for this podcast as well. That's minor in light of what we've talked about, but know that I truly appreciate it, and I truly appreciate you. And we'll return next week with something a little less heavy, but the story needed to be told. And since most of my audience is from America and is white, I wanted to make sure everybody was aware of what happened to this Poor Chicago boy who made a trip down to Mississippi to visit some relatives. So thank y'all for listening. Brad out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.